What have you done? I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so, so, so sorry. I didn't mean... I, 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 you are DJ! Shut up, DJ! Help! Shut up! Help! You think you could just terrorize my lawn? No, I'm sorry. You want to be a dead person? No, I love life. This place is not a playground for children. Got it from now on. This is my house. Why can't you respect that? Why can't you just stay away from her? podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week, we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. And typically with me, you guys, is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And y'all, he was here just a minute ago, but he looked in dire straits. He did kind of blurt out that he's been playing a game for four days straight with nothing more than a gallon of chocolate milk and an adult diaper, um, which is intense. I mean... Reed, kind of like myself, isn't like an active gamer, but when we get the bug, we can kind of devote a lot of time and energy to it. However, a gallon of chocolate milk and adult diaper, this does not sound like a, um, much less four days straight of it, does not sound like a recipe for cleanliness. Uh, in the meantime, while we await him, allow me to welcome you, dear listener, back in to October. And a brand new run of episodes this month dealing with that most treasured of hallowed holidays, a series affectionately titled, This is Halloween. But I'm getting ahead of myself, as I am often prone to do, because here at The Fear of God, we explore. We don't explain, except for right now, when I explain that you can listen to The Fear of God at your nearest podcast platform, you can watch The Fear of God on YouTube, and you can browse The Fear of God on the web at thefearofgodpodcast.com where you'll find episode archives and merchandise, including cell phone cases, t-shirts, campaign buttons, go vote, face masks, magnets, pillows, read, re-re, hey, buddy. That's, that's kind, of, kind of intense, huh? You okay? I'm on my, like, my fifth rock star. I'm like, yeah. ready for my... Yeah, ready for, I'm gonna beat that high score. Yeah. I'm telling you, 
when you and me meet again on the fields of some version of wrestling, electronic gaming, <laughs> your your butt is mine. You understand? I've been. I am ready for you. Mm. This is my training. Ooh, this is yeah. my training. <laughs> oh yeah, brother! You don't you know? I'm gonna be coming for you. <laughs> hey. That's usually what you do when we play it. You yeah. snap, snap it's a lackey. Too long. Yeah, that's it. It's been too long. <laughs> uh, have we hey, ever buddy. talked about Mario Kart therapy on here? I don't know. That you we know, have. if we have, I think it's, I, I think only in passing. Yeah. You know, not. Well, yeah, not with any substance. We'll leave it. But. We'll leave them wanting more. So, Reed, we've got. Because <laughs> <laughs> they want more yeah, of that. Yeah. Ooh, please, like, no. Pause. I guarantee you, uh, Hillabofus was just like, huh? You know. He, 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 his ears perked up at Mario Kart therapy. He's, he's down with that. Uh, somebody else is too, but, um, Riri, (laughs) we got a few quick announcements and business time. And then we do, we're going to get to some other things. So business Mm, time, you're, you're, I think you're up first on business time. No, I'm up first. That's right. We literally just talked about this three minutes ago. (laughs) Um, you first, you go, you go, ladies and gentlemen, uh, sort of. Not really book club because we're asking you to do a lot of reading right now and, and you can actually choose to not read this if you so chose, but uh, you do have that option, uh, right around the corner, uh, intentionally timed for over a year now to coincide with the election of 2020 is, uh, our next quarterly King installment, which will be the one and only the dead zone. If you know anything about the subject of this book, you'll recognize immediately the sort of conversation that might be afoot, given the state of the world. (laughs) So we are discussing the dead zone. Going to have some pod bros on uh, on for that. That's going to be uh, not next week, not the week after, but yes, the week after, I think. First weekend in November, first Tuesday in November. So Quarterly King is uh, on the horizon. Uh, You can read the dead zone if you'd like. Um, you can watch the Dead Zone if you'd like. Uh, that's the Christopher Walken and Martin Sheen himself, uh, the future, much more compassionate and compelling president, Jed Bartlett. Um, but we are going to be covering the Dead Zone. So if you do want to read that, get on that. Uh, don't feel like you have to. We'll be referencing. We'll probably be, as we typically do, jockeying back and forth uh, between the the text of the, the book as well as the film itself. So I'm excited about that read. The last time I've never read the book. Uh, and, oh, okay. uh, the last time I saw the film was with you about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. so, you know, that's a, I mean, obviously we'll have the conversation in a few weeks, but, um, but that it's one of the strongest adaptations of King's oh, works. Yeah. I think that's pretty objectively identified right? as like. It, it, yeah, David Cronenberg adapted uh, Christopher Walken, and you know we'll have ample opportunity to discuss it. But um, but yeah, I'm 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 curious to hear your thoughts uh, once you read the book. We'll get we'll get into that. So you'll, you'll hear my thoughts. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> what you got? Um, so um, while we're in the spirit of you know Quarterly King, and that's going to be airing on Election Day and everything. So speaking of voting, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if you go to the fearofgodpodcast.com or fearofgodpodcast.com, both will take you there. You click on the banner at the top. It will take you to the last remaining surveys for favorite horror films of the 2000s. That includes the 2000s and the 2010s. So from 2013 all the way up through 2020. I'm going to announce it here. 
I tried so hard to think about like how to contextualize this. If listeners are looking on the 2019 and the 2020 list, show us a little bit of grace about which one fell where because <laughs> because this year has been so yeah. weird for like releases and and some things aired on festival circuits but then it got picked up but wasn't released for the public later and and grasping actual release dates for 2019 and 2020 were really really difficult. And there's some stuff that might Even be in the 2020 survey that Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Because there was some stuff that when I did my research, you know, IMDb and Letterboxd and all these places said it released in 2019. But I was like, man, I could have sworn that that didn't come out until 2020. But I think it was because of, you know, like Festivals. they count festival yeah. releases and stuff like that, you know, premieres and debuts. So um, for most of the rest of the years, it's pretty on point, I think. But uh, for 2019 and 2020, if there's any of you in there, be like, this is a 2019 film or this is a 2020 film or whatever. Just show us a little bit of, of le- leeway there, if you will. But regardless, don't miss the point. Go there, vote on every single year from 2013 all the way up to 2020, because after the dead zone, we will then be spending the rest of the year counting down your favorites from every year all the way up through That's 2020. Crazy. It is very, very difficult to believe that we're going to be getting there, uh, but that is what we're in store for. So, But we need your votes, so go uh, bring out the vote to fearofgodpodcast.com. Vote on your favorite films from each of those years, and we'll be counting down the list when I'm the time actually, comes. Uh, I have not looked at these lists yet, because, uh, spoiler alert, Reed compiles them. Um, and I post them. Um, so I don't see them until after they're compiled, clearly. <laughs> uh, but I am kind of interested to see since I have become the student I have that ah. kind of 2016 and on kind of what the percentage, not even like, of things we've covered. I don't even mean that, but just like what percentage of what's on the list I've actually seen. That'll, that'll be just a fun little. Sure. Well, little game. and on that note, on, it. on that note and why, why I want so badly for the listeners to engage and vote and stuff is because we have done top 10 for horror mm. of 2016 on like 13, 14 and 15 are going to be fresh lists, but 16 through 19, it's going to be really interesting to see how the lists now compare to when listeners first voted on them, because obviously new things have been seen, things that were only freshly out, you know, by the time we took the surveys now might have gained some more popularity on on demand release. And, and so, yeah, I'm really curious to see how those lists play out particularly. And we've done episodes about them. So, yeah, it's it's going to be cool. It'll be cool to see. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, so that's Quarterly King. That's 2020, 2020. Can't believe we're rounding home on that. Can't believe we're rounding home on this year. For, for good or ill. Um, and finally, uh, in our business time segment here is the return of the audience. What you're watching, what you're reading, what you're listening to. Uh, we've been sharing these mm-hmm. over the course of the last months. They are a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, very grateful to all of you who have been submitting those. Please continue to do so. Um, we do have, so I, I'm sorry, I was about to introduce one because I was that excited about it, but, uh, I will introduce <laughs> it in a moment. Um, that said, how you can participate in this, uh, go back to, let's say a 2019 episode in the feed. Um, just, just click the timestamp, what you're watching, read and listening to, listen to the jingle that either read or I, um, rather, uh, who knows how well or not we deliver that jingle, uh, but listen to the tune and or create your own tune a la John Vinalas on the Endgame episode, which released last week, which was a heck of a lot of fun. That was a great conversation, Reed. That was really so great conversation. Uh, Thank you to Ian Olson for his participation and contributions there. Uh, Regardless, 
Submit your what you're watching, what you're reading, what you're listening to rendition. Record it on a voice memo recorder. Email it to fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And like what we are about to do, we will possibly play it for you on the... I mean, if you send it to us, we'll definitely get around to playing it for you. Uh, in the spirit of That's that, true. Reed, are you ready to do a what you're watching ourselves? You ready to... Let's share go ahead. a little bit. Yes. So, yes, let's dive into it. Yeah. So I am going to share this one. We've actually been sitting on it for a little while. Um, it feels quite appropriate, and I'm going to check the email real quick. So listener for some time, Abby Doosnap, who has just a baller last name, uh, D-E-W-S-N-A-P. <laughs> I just really like a good name, and Doosnap feels like a good one. Um, so Abby <laughs> submitted because apparently, I mean, I do remember this. It's not apparently as in she's wrong. On episode 121, she did look up the episode here. I wow doing her homework. I joked about either wishing I had or wishing you Reed would have done or I would have done a version of the Whatcha Watching jingle to the tune of Shallow <laughs> from A Star Is Born, originally recorded by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, which is a magnificent song. Well, Abby, wonderful listener that she is, decided to submit her version of Whatcha Watching to the tune of Shallow. awesome she has a really thank nice you. voice too yeah. very very nice thank you yes. abby do snap uh Absolutely. so what i've been watching is a star is born starring barbara streisand <laughs> and i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> this is halloween <laughs> <laughs> um what have i been watching can i can i go we're gonna have a really fun episode i think can i go kind of maudlin for a minute yeah, this is not course, what i've been watching but it but I thought about this today because what okay, sure, what sure. Abby's rendition there just conjured is, yes, a star is born. But more than that, the feeling of watching a movie. But more than that, the feeling of sitting in a theater watching a movie. And Riri, do you see? Like Regal is. I did. And so and Regal's so, our primary. Before you say the rest yeah. of it, you're going to say Regal is our primary cinema in town. So the t- really? we have two cinemas that are within like three or four miles of us. Both of them are Regal. So now the closest theater to us is about 20 miles away. So so just announced this week, taking effect as of this recording two days from now, uh, Regal is just shutting down their UK and US operations because of the coronavirus pandemic and other associated decisions made involving that. And is it weird to you read to think we did in the morning too early? <laughs> I know it's yeah. It's you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I had this weird feeling today of like, because on top of that, Disney just announced 28,000 layoffs. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't that long. Re- ago. The regal one was, I think to the tune of a dozen or 14,000. Yeah. Uh, employees that are now indefinitely laid off of work and just what a weird feeling to be like you know what we just spent five months meditating on 
a thing that maybe we were just preparing ourselves for <laughs> and not I mean, actually yeah. really in yet as a, I mean, in a lot of ways we are, but, uh, the ripple effect is going to be vast for yeah. the, the future. Abby, I apologize for taking your beautiful <laughs> in, in toning and turning it into a, a sad conversation about the movie theaters that begets whole other areas. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's that weird is to me. Yeah, please. Oh, sorry. No, it's it's no. just weird to me. the The last film that I saw in the theater that, somewhat ironically, I saw alone, and there were not very because of the particular later night showing that I went to. There weren't that many. I went like later in the evening on a weekday, so it was not uh, very crowded there either. Uh, was the Invisible Man? And me I've too. Yeah, and I've reflected multiple times this year about like, wow. I wonder how long Invisible Man will be the definitive, like, most recent film I've seen in the theater, which is really crazy to think about. It's really, it's it's disheartening to be sure, but uh, but it's just it's really nuts. It's really crazy, wild world. But. Uh, in the spirit of that, mm. I have been watching with my kids uh, two Netflix shows. Oh, uh, not uh, probably about five or six episodes into one, maybe about four or five episodes into the other. One is the Babysitters Club. I have been. Did you? Oh, yay! Yeah, That's I've been great. watching the adventures of Marianne and Stacy. Can I tell you a quick story? This is your Please. what you're watching, but but That's okay. um, it's our conversation though. So, um, my wife was a very big fan of the Babysitters Club books when she was growing up. Um, read uh, most, if not all of them. Uh, she doesn't think she's read absolutely all of them, but she read a substantive amount of them. And so when this new show was announced, she was like, okay, honey, I watch horror films with you on your birthday and Father's <laughs> Day and Halloween. You're watching Babysitter's Club with me, okay? And uh, and I don't... You may affirm this in real time right now. Uh, my wife would certainly affirm it. When I watch a thing, I do not passively watch a thing. I do not care what it is i may have something you know i I have been known to rewatch things while they are on in the background and i am multitasking that is fine but uh when i watch a thing particularly for the first time i engage with it i i think about it i think about the stories i think about everything else and it was really funny because then we were you know the like the first episode and i was like oh these are all the characters and 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 blah blah blah. (laughs) it was really funny to me she posted on facebook she was like all right here's the deal like my husband is watching babysitters club and he's like totally getting into the characters and and everything <laughs> it was really funny because what's the main girl's name like the the first narrator because it's been a while since we watched it i can't <laughs> I remember know. i've I been watching it <laughs> so but I, I i can't remember my my wife would my wife would know if i just called her in right now she would absolutely know but um but the main one i put a comment on the thing i said i'm saying she just needs to back off and start being so overprotective because this is their babysitter's club it's not her babysitter's club (laughs) well it's funny they do redeem her but there was an episode or two where i even said to my kids i was like she's not being very kind is she she's very (laughs) being very overbearing she's not kind (laughs) and smart and loving at all no Um, no look at you (laughs) (laughs) but um but i ain't i want to hear more of your thoughts i enjoyed that show i enjoyed it a lot yeah we're again about half a dozen in um it's it is very good uh family conversation fodder um you know uh depending on some of your personal viewpoints it might be very bad conversation fodder as a family (laughs) but it will be conversation fodder um but no i find it you know it's it's entertaining it's enjoyable i like the format which is more or less focusing on one kid's 
you know, kind of inner life each episode. Yeah. Um, but no, we're, we're having a good time on that. And you, yeah, you mentioned conversation fodder. I will say this cause there's some very progressive viewpoints in the, in the show that they, that they hit rather hard. I will say this, whether you come from a more conservative mindset or a more progressive mindset, if you want, and hopefully we should all desire this, if you want an inroad with some entertainment that will raise those conversation pieces without the concerns about like, uh, you know, content that's going to, you know, or like mature content that's sure. going to scandalize your yes. children. That is, it is, it is a fantastic inroad for that. Even if yes. the posture you discuss with your children is in a disagreeing stance from what they take, which I mean, I think uh, I didn't find anything really that I found questionable, uh, in the course of it, but it is very, very progressive. Even if you were going to discuss it from a disagreeing stance, it's a really great inroad for well, that. Well, and you know, yes, and I would utterly agree with that uh and and champion it for that that said you're talking to the guy who just the other night had puberty conversations around the fire pit uh, <laughs> <laughs> at nine o'clock and you know so that the these conversations are just in the air and all the things <laughs> all the things are in the air Congratulations. Um, <laughs> thank you um but no I, I would agree with you that it's it positions smartly and maturely things that prompt those conversations and yeah, from that absolutely. standpoint i found it actually and again we're only i think there's like three or four left that we've got to do uh the other one that you may be unfamiliar with i don't know because we never talked about it um is raising dion have you familiar with it but haven't seen it so it's uh michael b jordan produced mm-hmm. and, and he plays he, a small part in it right yeah he he's yeah. kind of an ancillary character he's a, a he's a central character but does not show up much which makes sense because he's michael b jordan that said, we're about four into it, and it is really good. Awesome. Um, it it kind of hits the notes you would kind of want out of um, a, a bit of a genre drama uh, mm-hmm. in terms of comedy. The the I don't know if you know the, the plot or the theme or anything, but it's effectively like Very a kid little. superhero type of show. Kind of. Oh, okay. A thing a thing happens, and this kid develops some superpowers and it's about coming to grips with that and, and all this sort of stuff and, and trying to live a normal life. But it's centered on this African-American boy and the family lives in Atlanta. And so there's a lot to a lot of hooks to it. Mm. Um, once it starts even getting into some of its more fantastical elements, the, the effects are pretty, uh, pardon the redundancy, but effective. Mm. Um, and it's a really, I wish it were, in this world in which we live right now, where everything is a 50 minute, whatever, I wish it were a little shorter so that you could maybe as a family, like burn through a little bit more. Oh, sure. I understand. It's kind of like, we'll watch one because it's 50 minutes. It'll be three, four more nights before we get to another one. And you'd kind of, sure. Although in that spirit, they, they pull off the cliffhanger, you know, formatting decent in a decent fashion. And my kids who aren't used to, um, this type of, television serialized television yeah right, uh, right. it really it, it it sinks its teeth in so it's kind of cool so oh like, that's awesome get, we'll get to the end of the episode and they're just like what i can't remember 
yeah, yeah. I'm like, nope, go to bed. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> Dad, great. Daddy's nope. got to watch Cobra Kai. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, nope, we had to wait week on week. You're going to have to yeah. suffer through the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's funny. That's funny. Anyhow, um, so, yeah, I, I actually recommend both of those, unlike my Mulan of a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, well, uh, we didn't plan this, but uh, I'm also going to mem- mention a different Netflix show that my wife and I just completed. Um, we started it. I am a very, very big fan. Obviously, you know that I'm a huge Star Trek nerd, and I'm a very big fan of space shows in general. So I like stories about... Uh, you know, people who are on a spaceship or they're surviving the perils of space or a planet or something like that. I just, I like that kind of science fiction. Um, well, this is a show called Away, uh, starring mm, yeah, Hillary, Hillary Swank. Yeah, Hillary Swank and Josh Another Charles. Another little karate kid. Oh, yeah, that's right. She universe. was the next one. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, uh, so we start, I knew I wanted to see it because I knew that the premise of it was about, uh, sometime in the not too distant future, the first, um, and, and it is a, is a global mission because it, it has, uh, represented on this particular shuttle craft is America, China, Russia, uh, India. I forget, uh, I forget who, who else is represented, uh, because I just didn't do the homework to talk about it. But, um, I think what you mean is represented here is all of the markets Netflix is trying to cater to. Basically, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I see what you did there, Netflix. Yeah, I see what you yeah. did. So, um, but uh, it's a multicultural uh, journey to Mars. The first uh, human beings going to Mars. So, um, in this show, there is a base on the moon where they sort of stop off, fuel up, and then take the long, somewhat treacherous journey to Mars. Um, and I knew I wanted to watch it. My wife was a bit on the fence about it, but she's like, we'll try the first episode. Here's what I really, really dig about it. Um, while the space adventure is happening they continually pivot back not in a frustrating way but they continue to pivot back to the people on the ground and their Mm -hmm. impact as they wait indefinitely because once the astronauts reach a certain point then everything is time delayed by like 30 minutes and they can only get you know these little snippet communications and mostly emails and everything's got this long delay so when something on the spacecraft goes wrong they can't troubleshoot it with them in real time. Not only right. that, but they are out in the in the throes of space where they can't just like pause or turn around or anything like that. So it does a pretty deft job of being able to keep the stakes high. It is like just the right amount of melodrama. It's not yeah. high drama and it's it's not soap opera, but it is like just the right amount of melodrama. And I feel like for my tastes and sensibilities, it struck the right balance between edging into cheesiness at time and 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 a bit um you know again melodramatic uh but then also there's some circumstances where you really come to care about the characters because uh what they have at stake is pretty dire and uh and you wonder and I won't spoil uh where they land uh or if they land uh ironically there um but uh, they really do a good job of raising the stakes to a degree of I don't know if that character's going to make it I don't know if this mm. crew is going to make it and I don't know what the show's going to have to say Hillary's about that probably going to make it <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not going to say. So, uh, <laughs> but um but anyway, I I did I did highly enjoy the film Away. I would say it's probably firmly it's in a, the Wait, is it a film or is it a TV series? It's a TV series, sorry. Okay. Um I said film because that's my habit. But That's okay. Um, I was just I thought it was TV series and then yeah. you 
then I was like, well, maybe I should give away a chance. No, no, no. Uh, ten, ten episode series. I did highly enjoy it. Um, and, uh, I would classify it in the sort of the PG 13 range content wise. So maybe accessible for older kind of like kids. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, that's what, uh, we were watching. And I will say if they don't get another, season i don't know if they'll because netflix is like just canceling stuff left and right now if they don't get another season it ends in such a way i won't say if it's happy or sad but it ends with a a reasonable degree degree of closure Hmm. more stories could be told but there is a reasonable degree of closure that if this is all we get it's good hmm what were you about speaking of um speaking of netflix speaking of 10 episodes okay one you just had a birthday happy birthday Oh, thank Two, you. Yeah. I've got a birthday this week. Happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. Three, on my birthday, Mike Flanagan is releasing House of Black Manor. That's your birthday present right there, man. Mike Flanagan gave you a, a birthday present. House he of did. Bl- I, the I'm Haunting nervous. of Bly Manor. I'm nervous. Really? I love uh, Well, not because I doubt Flanagan's skill. I'm nervous because mm. I love Hill House so much. And I get that. I get that. Yeah. You know. Yes, we'll see. We'll see. We will. We will. We shall see. Um, But that has been another installment of... What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Thank you, Abby Do Snap. It makes me want to go watch that movie. I love that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a heavy movie. I was about to say, that's how how you relax and unwind, huh? No. (laughs) No, from life. (laughs) (laughs) The worst tragedy, like the worst Shakespearean tragedy would be like, it ain't 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, gosh. It's true. (laughs) Right? It's true. Shed a tear. You know what? Speaking of, uh, oh, wait, no. See, we got more stuff to get to. I was going to say, speaking of heavy movies. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No. Wait, what? You were going to say, speaking of heavy movies? Monster House. I was talking about Monster House, but I forgot we had a book to get to. Oh, yeah, we got a book. Don't forget the book. Don't, I'm not. This is book club. This is book club. Book club. Jackson book club. Hoppers. Book so club I, song. <laughs> so <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't referenced it yet, but you mentioned earlier that I had a birthday. So I'm now joined the, uh, I've now joined people I mean, in, their, in their 40s. I did, yeah. You yeah, have. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, so. Thank you. Yeah, Welcome I hit to the, the big, four decade club. Hit the big four zero. But look at look at the wonderful shirt that my that my wife Ooh. got me. Isn't that cool? It's a Is wonderful that a, design. A horse of, man without a head. That that yes, one might say. <laughs> if you were uh, that he is a. He'll never get ahead in life. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna head right. Not off a good that. time um, to lose one's head, man. So. um yes my wife got me a lovely uh headless horseman t-shirt which i'm very very fond of uh which is a a wonderful segue into our this is halloween programming and a stop off in greentown illinois for the next installment of something wicked this way comes um so listeners if you've been keeping pace with us we are going to be covering in this little segment the content of chapters 13 through 24, which concludes part one 
called Arrivals. Um, so uh, we are going to be venturing into the adventures of Will and Jim uh, and finally get to see what was teased in uh, the first 12 chapters and in our last conversation, uh, some more specifics around Cougar and Dark's uh, mysterious carnival. So, hey, this is early in, in Chapter 13 and yeah. touches a thematic button, but I want to ask you about it as a sort of launch pad for please the, yes the, the rest of part one um i mentioned to you before started recording how a thing i liked and it's it's not a criticism but the material we're covering for today leans less poetic more narrative and that's right. kind of cool i mean it, we get some really interesting plot elements that happen in this run of chapters but there's a really powerful a uh, bit of what I would say is is poetic uh, in chapter 14. And that's uh, a short chapter of Charlie's inner life mm. about being a father. Mm-hmm. And, you know, specifically why I wanted to sort of broach this with you and, and you know, we are both fathers. You are specifically a father of a son. Uh, I don't share that quite the same, but this whole segment was just really wild it's it's a it's a meditation on 3 a.m the the yeah the time of 3 a.m and how uh i just love this god midnight's not bad you wake up and go back to sleep one or two's not bad you toss but sleep again five or six in the morning there's hope for dawn's just under the horizon but three oh christ 3 a.m doctors say the body's at low tide then the soul is out the blood moves slow you're the nearest to dead you'll ever be save dying so it goes on and on talking real poetically about 3 a.m. And then, uh, again, this is into Charlie, the father's mono- inner monologue. Wasn't it true? Had he read it somewhere? More people in hospitals die at 3 a.m. than at any other time. Stop, he cried silently. The wife stirs. Uh, his wife smiled in her sleep. Why? This is the kind of main thrust that's worth kind of a conversation, if however short. Um, uh, she stirs. She smiled in her sleep. Why? She's immortal. She has a son, your son too, but what father ever really believes it? He mm-hmm. carries no burden. He feels no pain. What man, like woman, lies down in darkness and gets up with child? The gentle, smiling ones own the good secret. Oh, what strange, wonderful clocks women are. They nest in time, capital T. They make the flesh that holds fast and binds eternity. They live inside the gift, no power, except and need not mention it. Why speak of time when you are time? and shape the universal moments as they pass into warmth and action. How men envy, this is just powerful stuff. How men envy and often hate these warm clocks, these wives who know they will live forever. So what do we do? We men turn terribly mean because we can't hold to the world or ourselves or anything. Blind to continuity, all breaks down, falls, melts, stops, rots, or runs away. So since we cannot shape time, where does that leave men? Sleepless staring that's that's amazing yeah oh it's it's fantastic it's absolutely powerful and then before we get into the actual discussion about it i love the coda at the very end of the chapter because then his wife sort of wakes up and asks and she says are you all right charlie and then i just love it says she drowsed he did not answer he could not tell her how he was yeah i'm just like oh man it's well what's kind of powerful about that that whole section is Bradbury does something interesting there by 
Because on the one hand, you could you could say, man, he's making the man, and not by the man, I mean Charlie himself, but just literally the the archetypal man, right? The tragic figure in this examination. At the same time, he hints at the woman's tragic mm. engagement mm. of the cosmos. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like right. she is burdened by the secret, by holding time, by shaping the universe. That's, it's just a really powerful kind of passage there. And if it feels almost burst of like, we mentioned last segment about his grasp of language. It feels almost like uncovered. It doesn't necessarily, and there's a lot of craft to it, but it feels almost like the, the poetry of it just feels birthed. It feels like, okay, there's no other way to yeah. express what's being expressed here. And, Charles Holloway is, um, I think I had mentioned this somewhere on the pod before. If I didn't, then, or, you know, it was so long ago. But before my son was born, I read three or four, in anticipation over the course of those nine months, I read uh, three or four books very specifically. And those books were very intentionally about fathers that I uh, that had stuck in my memory in in literature. So I read To Kill a Mockingbird because Atticus Finch. I read The Road because of the man. I read uh, Atticus, which is a book that you pointed yeah. me towards by mm. you know Ron Hansen. What a book! And uh, and then also I read Something Wicked This Way Comes because mm. of Charles Holloway and these reflections on what it means to be a father and what it means to be an older man. There's a segment. It's not nearly. I'm getting there. It's true. <laughs> um, there's a, a segment that is in a later chapter, not nearly so poetic, but almost as powerful, where Will gets in trouble, and we'll get into some more of the narrative beats. But Will gets in trouble for coming home late, and he and Jim have been distracted by the carnival, which again we'll get into the specifics of. But he gets in trouble for coming home late, and you know that some conversation took place between Charles and his wife, and when Charles gets up there, he like like stumbles through having to correct Will and having to talk to Will, and you get Will's side of that, where Will is like, Dad, sit, talk, listen, mm -hmm. you know, like, but all Dad can do is stumble around. Like, all he can do is just walk around it and think around it and talk around it. He can't sit in it um and so it's a really poignant expression of this father and son's inability to connect with one another uh not yeah. out of a lack of desire but just an inability they just don't speak the language of each other anymore and so all charles says is is just be careful and then his wife like scolds him for it right right and as he's walking back down the hall he's like you know like He's too young. I'm too old, you know, because that is really that's that's something that is uh, definitely a thematic entryway into this. But it cannot be ignored for what we have seen and for what comes. It cannot be ignored that Charles Holloway is in his 50s. He's he's a middle aged man and he's got a a dawning teenage boy at his at his right. charge, you know, and that gap is a tremendous rift between them, not because anybody's done anything wrong, but just sure. it is yeah. too far a chasm for them to to bridge. Um, and meanwhile, Charles is like longing to be young again and longing to be in connection with his former self. And then passages like this where it talks about, I, I think I've, I'm still 
sort of trying to get to the bottom of all the things that Charles Halloway means in reflections like what you read, but um, just that that understanding of I'm I'm not the man I wanted to be. I'm not the man in the time I wanted to be. Um, and it's like, I feel like, especially now, you, you, you uh, like Will and Jim, you know, you may have charged a bit ahead of me in the game, but we kind of run shadow and shadow in this, uh, you know, bridging these years. But now that I'm entering 40, it's one of those things where I, I am still trying to grasp like, okay, well, what does that what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for, you know, for in this existential way that you try to unpack? And, and it is absolutely a theme of the book, because if you haven't picked up on it already, readers, uh, listeners, co-host, um, one of the elements of the carnival, and I'm going to break into a bit of narrative, but it's not completely divorced from the theme that we're beginning to unpack. Um, we see that Mr. Cougar who is of Cougar and Dark's show, uh, Mr. Cougar uh, is this tall, very imposing and threatening individual. But then he steps onto the carousel. The carousel plays Chopin's funeral march backwards and runs backwards. And as it makes every one of its revolutions, he hey, goes, Benjamin Buttons. <laughs> Benjamin Buttons. He goes backwards in time. And as you can uh, probably intuit, that is one of the enticements the the themes like part of what cougar and dark will offer to their patrons is the promise of freedom from time and the promise of you will be unbridled from time like you will that um and so you can imagine the conflict that is beginning to stir at the edges and that when we get into our next segment we'll we'll have the collisions that have been building up to culminating into you know the final section but um but this is this is what the sinister the something wicked of the title is is this temptation this allure of you can be unbridled from time miss foley wanting to you know their seventh grade teacher who they you know encounter at the carnival and her wanting you know all of these these fantasies of imagination these wanting to go back to childlike wonder wanting to return to a time where time did not matter um, Mm -hmm. or to an age when time did not matter Um, and it's something that i think particularly us at our age but i think a vast majority of listeners either have or will very soon come into conflict with that sense of things of just being at home not only in your own skin with who you are but when you are and where you are and the our our place in chronology uh the times we find ourselves in and the age at which we find ourselves in those times it's a it's a terrible conflict that we all sort of have to wrestle against uh as it were um so yeah i I feel like i'm no uh, dominating the conversation yeah, well, you know, it is the fear of God. Um, <laughs> uh, no, what, um, what, what's another segment that you want to talk about? So the, um, we, we talked to, for a bit about Mr. Cougar. So, so the characters that we meet, and again, this passage has, although that, you know, that gut punch of chapter 13, most of these next, although the poetry of the language maintains, there's not as many reflective and thoughtful passages in these next run of chapters. It's a lot of just, okay, the carnival has arrived. 
what is this carnival all about? Miss Foley arrives and she looks into the House of Mirrors. One of the things that I really want to point out, just for keeping pace with the narrative, is Jim and Will, who were presented to us at the beginning of the book as, you know, parallels and opposites, but friends to the core, we begin to see an unraveling of their friendship. Not an unraveling, but a rift beginning, because sure. Jim is very enticed by the carnival. He's very drawn to it. His raw, somewhat darker-sided curiosity is is attracting him. To, and and the uh, the members of the carnival, uh, particularly Mister Dark, zone in on that, and mm-hmm. they and they know Jim is our our sort of uh, fish on the hook right now, and Will is staying a bit in the periphery and uh, is more sort of concerned for his friend, more sort of trying to um, keep some degree of sanity, um, and to the degree it's 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 very heartbreaking that that page and a half where. After they've been to the carnival, they've escaped its clutches, they rescued Miss Foley from the House of Mirrors, they've returned home, they've now seen that uh, Mr. Cougar reverted in time, mm-hmm. became right. Robert. Robert the nephew, and, uh, and like, you know, presented himself as Miss Foley's, you know, distant nephew, and uh, they're enthralled by this, it aches a bit, Will gets home, gets scolded for his late arrival, can't connect with his father, and I just he he longs to talk with his father. He longs to sit and and unpack all of these things. And then he throws the pebbles at the window and can't connect with his friend, right? Because his friend is too enticed by the um, by the allure of the carnival. And so then it's kind of heartbreaking when Jim finally like cl- climbs out of the window, crawls down, and then Will like tries to get his attention, and Jim straight up ignores him. Right, right. And uh, it's hey, do you? Uh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Do you? No, uh, partly just because, though, having read it 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, <laughs> we old, um, <laughs> I don't remember this level of detail, but is Robert the nephew, are we to assume Miss Foley had a Robert nephew? Uh, and now Great question. Cougar is a facsimile thereof? Or, that or is does a, it, I mean, ultimately, it doesn't kind of matter other than just to convey the sinister nature of all the goings on. But right, right, it's a little confusing there for a minute. And I, I can, I can sympathize with that because I don't have a grasp, I don't have a concrete answer to that, and I don't think the book gives it to us. So I think what you could simultaneously praise and indict that element for is that it ultimately doesn't matter. He has presented himself as her nephew, whether right. she had one that he looks like or whether. He She's has bewitched. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which and I can the, get behind that. Part of it was, I just couldn't tell if I missed something. <laughs> no, sure, sure, sure. No, no, no. I, I also do not know exactly why Miss Foley is um, sort of captured by that illusion, but uh, but she is. And even more so than that, I don't know if you caught, because it's, it, it, it's um, in the midst of a lot of other goings on. Did you catch uh, the dwarf and the significance about the dwarf? He's, uh, when, rod. He's a yes. squished lightning rod salesman. Yes, that basically the last time we saw the lightning rod salesman from the first chapter, um, he was being drawn in to the most beautiful girl in the world, frozen in ice. And they, they mentioned while Charles Halloway, before his big poetic reflection, um, he saw in the shop that there was a, a, a 
pool of water down there. But uh, that's all the only reference point back to that sort of woman trapped in ice. So now we see the fate of the lightning rod salesman, that he is uh, now the dwarf in this carnival, which you can... Uh, which can lead you to believe that not only is this carnival interested in sort of doing things to people, but it's interested in sort of capturing people for its own, you know, to join its troop, um, if you will. Um, how far that desire extends and, and exactly to what extent they will go to, to make that happen, I will leave for the next segment of the book where that is a bit more uh, unpacked. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so the dwarf becomes the lightning rod salesman, and uh, it, it cannot— we can't leave uh, the discussion of this section of the book without tying things off to where finally the police officers, uh, well, I should say what leads us there. And then did you have any other specific things before we sort of dive I wanna, into it? I want to finish this off with uh, something wordy this way comes, but other than that. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, we'll, Mr. Electrico, let's do it. Yeah, so so we'll mention this and then we'll do something wordy this way comes and then uh, check into the monster house. So um, th- what happens is... Mr. Cougar passes himself as Robert, Miss Foley's nephew. Um, then Jim and Will uh, return to Miss Foley's house late at night. Jim, presumably to have a discussion with Robert and possibly like be drawn in by the, the party. Yes. Will to try to stop him. They get into a literal fist fight. Will picks a fight with Jim in an attempt to try to break the spell. And then what happens is Robert, who is really, don't let these names throw you if you're not reading along. Mr. Cougar and Robert are the same character, but the book, once he transforms into Robert, the book refers to him frequently just as Robert. Um, So uh, then Robert frames them for burglary, and then they chase him. They chase after him. He runs back to the carnival, presumably to transform back into Mr. Cougar and be an imposing threat to these boys. He jumps on the carousel, begins to travel forward in time, and the boys, in an effort to try to stop the carousel, uh, sort of falsely short-circuit it and cause it to spin around uh, faster, faster and go in uh, just this wild uh, series of revolutions where it spins around countless times. They don't know. They lose track of how many times it spins around. But when it finally breaks down and stops, Mr. Cougar is not returned to his former self. He is this significantly older, uh, incalculably older, uh, mummified, shriveled up version of himself. Hair, long, white, um, very, very much dead. And the boys call the police to try to come and sort of like, hey, here's what we've done. But when the police arrive, this is the first chance that we get to see the carnival in kind of its full uh, regalia. Um, not you'll you'll see more of that a little bit later. But uh, they're all rehearsing their acts, and Mr. Dark, who is also the illustrated man, and he even corrects him. He says, you know, like, oh, the tattooed man. He's like, no, 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 the illustrated man. Yeah, There's a difference. You did, you did that to me last night. Yeah, I did. And, uh, <laughs> it's direct. Is a direct reference to the book. Um, but uh, so the illustrated man, his illustrations, his tattoos. They come to life. They move and they slither and they they live on his skin rather than just being emblazoned there. And um, so he is in his full glory. Uh, all of the other players are rehearsing their acts. And now the mummified, shriveled up Mr. Cougar is sitting upon an electric chair 
and they are, uh, you know, Mr. Dark is referring to him as the new act. Now he's Mr. Electrico. And they shoot him through with hundreds of thousands of volts, and he comes back to life in this very sort of haunting, in front of the police mm-hmm. officers and the boys yeah. and everything. It's one of the most sort of uh, frightening passages that we've seen, uh, from my tastes, in the book sure. so far. Um, and so he, he comes back to life. Um, and, uh, and then to the boy's horror that he is now back to life. And then, um, I found it particularly haunting that after all of that display, the police officers are just like, wow, what a trick. It's so wonderful. <laughs> you know, like this is so great. Um, but the boys know truly what sinister thing has, has befallen all of them. And then, um, they, Mr. Dark and the, uh, they ask the boys' names, and the boys won't give him their real names. Uh, Jim passes himself off as Simon Smith and Will as Oliver Brown, um, because they, they don't want their real names sort sure. of thrust into it, which le- re- um, readers can kind of intuit becomes a a point a bit later uh, uh so you'll you'll see that will come back into play um but that's the narrative beats that's what sort of ties us off is that we see the power both in what mr cougar did in his transformation and also they watch him die and he comes back to life as mr electrico before we do something wordy this way comes i should mention that bradbury often told the story and i cannot uh remember all of the details of it but he often told the story that when he was about six years old i believe he was six or seven years old he went to a carnival and they had a man there that was called mr electrico and mr electrico when bradbury approached him touched his nose and felt this little you know static electricity but felt this little jolt felt this little electricity and when mr electrico touched him he said live forever and that that wow occurrence just um you know captivated bradbury's imagination yeah Yeah, and uh and so reverberates through so much of his work and uh so now we see mr electric whereas i um there's a about 30 year old maybe 35 year old u2 song called electric co Oh, so I think okay. All the, whenever I saw the name, I was like, "Oh, no, it's a U two song." I wonder yep. if there's a good. No, no resonance. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> um, but I did want. I thought this is where you were going there with the names. Uh, one of the most haunting tags on the end of that section with the introduction of Mister Electrico is when they give their false names. He mm-hmm. dubs them instead, Mister Sickly and Mister Pale. Oh, and yes. That's that yes, was, yes. I don't know. There's something about that that was real ominous and absolutely you know it's interesting um i think and 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 i guess this is just the nature of of quality prose and literature itself uh ultimately you know if you were to describe the plot of this especially these days this was written in the 60s sure uh Uh, these days it's not that weird right you're like oh two kids Weird carnival, uh, wild goings on. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just the nature of the style that makes it last, I think. Yes. Cause, cause, right. And this is a weird, that's, that's a weird sort of statement, I guess, maybe. But I was thinking about, like, have there been any worthwhile adaptations of this material? And before you answer that, my impulse would be to say probably not, in part because so much of the richness of the text is that inner life coupled with the style. Right. Right. And And I will say are going to have a hard time conveying that. No, absolutely. And I will say what gave me 
So there is an adaptation of it that is um, is decent from my memory of it. It's been several years since I've seen it. Uh, I actually want to revisit it since, you know, because it's been so long and since we're rereading the book. Um, but uh, it is uh, very much like plot based. So it, it sure. abandons yes, a lot exactly. of the poetry and therefore, um, without intending to, abandons a lot of the power of what you get right. in, yes. in the prose. But and you just said much more, much more lovely what I was trying to say <laughs> yes, is that I imagine when you strip it of the text itself, right, right, what you're left with is plot, which is fine, but not alluring. Right, know? exactly. Now, one thing that gave me a bit of hope is I, I am understanding that there is supposedly a new adaptation that was in development pre-COVID. I don't know the status of it. Um, you know, in COVID world, but um, it was supposedly in development as a potential miniseries or like a limited series. And I thought, you know, if there's anything that gives me hope of maybe capturing the ominous nature of it, along with the poetic power, it is an adaptation like The Haunting of Hill House. And I don't think Flanagan mm -hmm. had anything mm -hmm. to do with yeah. this new yes. greenlit production, but uh, but something like an adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House that does have a tremendous right. amount of introspective, you know, yes. kind of thoughtfulness in its narrative, while also being a, a sinister, macabre, very frightening plot, uh, that gives me hope that maybe there is a possibility of a of a of a good adaptation on the horizon. Um, but uh, but we'll see. We'll just have to. No, that's see. a good template because in my brain, I was asking, has there been a movie? But the movie version would fail, I think. Sure. It is that more thoughtful, paced, pensive, deliberate, meditative, introspective version that, yes, Hill House delivers on that I could see working and actually sure. accomplishing, at least in some degree, uh, what, the, right. what the, the text is actually after. Um, yep, absolutely. Well. Here we are, Reed, at uh, something wordy this week. Um, a few, a few <laughs> vocabulary words for the old, uh, old brain pen. Um, <laughs> uh, three, of, three of them this time around, old chap. Um, the number one is on page 106. No. Page 106, and it is the word skirled. S-K-I-R-L-E-D. <laughs> skirled. Mm. A word I was unfamiliar with, but it means to play the bagpipe. Oh. Or the sound of a bagpipe. I okay. was unfamiliar with the word skirled. <laughs> Next, Mr. Lackey. This is, this one is, uh, it's, it's, it's a, is it a homonym? Uh, another word that sounds the same, but spelled differently, something like that. Um, mm. it's been a while since I've looked up my forms of speech, parts of speech. Uh, uh, this is S-E-R-E, -E, pronounced Seer oh. on page 108 and it's an adjective or it has an adjective and a noun form. The adjective <laughs> is dry and withered. Dry mm. and withered. I imagine Mr. Cougar in his Ford, you know, round and round we go on the old carousel chap. Uh, that, that exactly. Was, was described as seer. Uh, last one, and this is uh, multi-syllabic entry here just kind of rolls off the tongue uh on page 103 it is agglomerative that's right <laughs> agglomerative starts with an a ends with a tiv agglomerative and it means simply gathered together into a cluster or a mass 
gather wow. or to collect or gather into a cluster OMS. So, you know, do not in the age of COVID, uh, conduct yourselves agglomeratively. Do not by any circumstance group yourselves together, mayhap as part of a Supreme Court sort of thing. Quite, where quite. A bunch of people of great import, at least in our country, are agglomeratively composing themselves mm, and getting each mm -hmm. other sick. I just did that. That, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, has been another installment of Something Wordy This Way Comes on the field. Oh my gosh. I love that suddenly like that. I picture you in your in your dinner jacket and smoking <laughs> yes. pipe, you know, it was oh, like oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Pull up the old vocabulary chap. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, okay, so our um, turn. Yep. So now uh, that was uh, the installment of Something Wicked This Way Comes. Uh, we are now going to pivot back to our next chapter of This Is Halloween, where we are covering the film from 2006, uh, directed by one Mr. Gil Keenan and written by Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub. Uh, and uh, not to be forgotten, Dan Harmon, Rob Schraub and Pamela Petler. Monster House. Um, had you ever seen this before? I I had seen this one, oh boy. Oh, are you going to do that <laughs> all this episode? No, I'm not. It's uh, kind of uh, tough to break after you've done it. So it's, it's going to take <laughs> me a second to completely work it out of my system. Uh, really Understood. funny story. Uh, about 15 years ago, I went to audition for a Bojangles commercial. Yes, the biscuit place here in town. And um, the role was like this biscuit peddler. I'll post this on the <laughs> socials after I talk about this after this episode. Airs. A great commercial. And I happened at the time to be doing a production at the Children's Theater of Charlotte of The Magician's Nephew, wherein I played ah. uh, Strawberry the Horse. So when I went to this audition, I was like, you know what? He's this like, this like scuzzy biscuit peddler, like guy and so i was like oh he's gonna be a cockney i was like hey yeah look at the biscuits you know so I, I did the audition quite like that you know like an old cockney fella and i was like oh, hey reed you want my biscuits hey <laughs> i do not want your biscuits sir <laughs> anyway so i did the audition that way i met i went to the callback and whenever you're in this type of process you're like well i did this thing at the first round i should probably do it for the second round so i did the audition like that too like oh biscuits in bow dangles you know oh, um <laughs> so <laughs> so then what's really funny is they called because they were like hey we want to cast you i was like yeah that's great and they're like but but the client's a little concerned, like, you know, can you do an American accent? <laughs> I was like, um, I'm from Georgia. Like, yeah. That's really I, funny. I'm happy that I was so successful at that, that you actually thought my dumb self was like, for real. Anyway, That's really hilarious. Yep. That was a really uh, good commercial. You did a good job. Thank you. That was great. Peddling your biscuits there. Um, so, uh, I'll go ahead and, I'll go ahead and get it out of the way. Yep. So we don't have to talk about it ever again. Okay. What? Oh, here um, we go. Just, just, oh, do you know where I'm going? Yes, I know where you're going. Oh, do you? I didn't know if you remembered it's this. It's Reed. It's Reed. Wow. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's Reed. <laughs> so. I just well, love listen, how I mean, you just, you're like, you know what, Nathan? Uh, thank you for your little story about that oh, come one on. and the commercial oh, world. You know, your biscuit commercials allow me. Move aside, move aside. <laughs> oh, that's very cute of you with your biscuit commercial. 
<laughs> 15 years ago. Let me tell you what I did 15 years ago. So about 15 years ago. <laughs> Actually, it'd yes. probably be more like uh, 16, 17 years ago, but right, whatever. Right. Um, I'll be back. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, okay. So, I know, um, I'm playing with you. I know, I know. I, I share uh, a credit with not the both writers of this film, not Pamela Petler, but uh, Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub. I uh, share a credit with them because they together did a really fun, inventive little, uh, I, I think it eventually evolved into like a YouTube show or whatever, um, called Channel 101. And the premise was you created these short, the, the only rules were it had to be a five-minute thing your limit was five minutes period and if you made uh, a, a show that was five minutes and 10 seconds your last 10 seconds would be cut off like or you would be disqualified from exhibiting it so it had to be five minutes could be about anything else and uh i got together with my, some of my buddies at the time and created a, a little noir zombie uh sort of stop motion animation piece called dick richard's private dick and Rob Schraub and Dan Harmon both uh, agreed to be actors in a couple of those episodes. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I share an on-screen credit with uh, with them. And uh, so I'm just See? getting it out of the way. No, it's fine. I shared about my biscuits. You shared about your private dick. We're all good. Let's <laughs> jump into the Monster House's <laughs> uvula. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, man, they just like, it just, it just happens. Woo, it just I'm rolls ready to go off. now. It just I'm good. rolls off. You're good. Yeah. You warmed up. Yeah. Um, so when you, What's next? So, <laughs> so this was your uh, second or third time seeing it or just like, uh, probably like third. Um, yeah. This is, a, this is an interesting film for me where years ago before I saw it, it was one of those I think I held off on because I was like, ah, it's dumb. Oh, you know, sure, yeah. so so like as I can be a bit judgmental towards media sometimes before I actually <laughs> engage with it. And, uh, kind of roundly turned around, if that's a thing, uh, mm. rather sharply turned around, uh, once I finally did see it. So yeah, this is sure, sure. definitely two, at least possibly three. Gotcha. Doubt, doubtfully yeah. four. Like so that. what's interesting definitely is definitely not five, not five. possibly not two, five. maybe three, doubtfully four, definitely not five. <laughs> wow. You say my lists are, are tiresome. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> So, um, so uh, I remember being very excited when I found out that this film was gonna yeah, was gonna buddies, be happening, and and when I saw it, I liked it, but it did not uh, thrill me to the degree that it now holds in my heart. Like my first viewing of it, I was like, "That was good, I liked it." Um, but as time has gone on, I like it more from Dan and Rob. You, you, <laughs> no, you've been there. I think it's funny. I. It's it's a different kind of story. I don't I, I, I think it would be easy to go into this film with some strange expectations because it takes some pivots more than once in directions that you would not necessarily intuit from just the oh monster house kids close to Halloween blah 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 it's just it's a very different type of story and I, that's something that now and on this episode I'm going to praise about it and that I appreciate about it but contemporary to the time that was not something that I was really prepared for and so uh, this is a film that had that I had to warm up to but since having warmed up to it it is uh, very much a film that I enjoy and love and uh, I mean love's a strong word but there's some elements about this that I that I truly do love um, I'll get a couple of trivial bits out of the way if you don't mind um, so as of 2018 
this is the only motion capture film uh, that is done in this style that features an entirely original story, not adaptation. So like uh, versions of the same sort of technology like Polar Express or Beowulf or A Christmas Carol, uh, this is the only version of that kind that uh, it, it features an entirely original story. Um, there's a couple of little Stephen King nods in mm-hmm. there. Um, uh, I don't. Do you have any trivial bits? I want to make sure I don't steal every one of them. Yeah, I'm just deleting them as I go. What? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to say this one, and then you can just whatever. Um, but uh, there's a couple of Stephen King nods. The tricycle scene, though not in an ominous hallway, is a callback to The Shining. Um, and then there's also uh, the little skeleton, the the or not skeleton, the monkey, the electronic monkey that they. Uh, shoot with water when they get into the basement uh that's also from skeleton crew so a couple little stephen king nods what the, you got I, on that trivial bit Pat? well uh, another king note is the idea of a house that comes alive and eats people can be found in the wastelands the dark tower i don't remember that but it's been a long time since i've read long the wastelands. Time since I've read the wastelands yeah it's been a long time since i've read the wastelands so, but i don't remember that either i'll so assume sure. they're right though i'll give them okay. the benefit of the doubt uh the one that i did find fun and a bit of a fog crossover here um during the vacuum cleaner scene where the boy is dressed up to look like a monster it is dressed like a kid who walks into the halloween party in donnie darko with the same mask uh, and letterman's jacket that's pretty awesome shout yeah. out steve beckley um <laughs> i i the 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 third act is a little more action set piece type of storytelling sure. but right, that right, said right. i mean i watched this last night with my oldest kids and they'd seen it before, but we just had a grand old time. I mean, it's, it's wonderful, right? It's yeah. so funny. Um, and, <laughs> and if anything, I don't know if you'll agree with this and this is a bit more of a, a recommendation type of sentence or statement, but I think it's like the perfect kids horror movie. Like it's, it, it really is. Yeah. It's got kind of that juvenile humor that would be attractive, but it's not too much. Um, right. Mm-hmm. It is edgy slash scary, but not too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Right. Right. Um, and it kind of teaches a little bit, uh, about just narrative structure, you know, like with oh, sure. meaning, yeah. meaning what you think is happening is not really happening. Mm-hmm. Storytelling. Um, yeah. You know, so from that standpoint, I think it's actually incredibly well executed. Um, yes. I think. Interestingly, sorry, I'm just kind of going all over the place here. As no, kind of weird as the facial, does it, it's reminiscent of like Polar Express a little bit. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, right, right. That right. little kind of Uncanny Valley vibe. So that said, setting aside that aspect of the facial design of the characters, it's incredibly well animated. Like, oh, yes. Especially yes. for a movie, what, 10 years old? Something like that. Yeah, uh, almost fifteen because of yeah. two thousand six. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's a long time ago in animation, mm-hmm. and for as lush and detailed and lived in as the world is of the movie, it's pretty impressive. I love that. One of the things I love about it is I love that the characters do not stay static. Like when you're watching people just interact most of the time people are in some degree of small motion they like mm-hmm. they like they, they wiggle a little bit even if sure. they're standing still they just they sort of they don't stay but when you're watching regular animation if a character is not dynamic if they're not doing something then they don't move they're just like standing there right yes and and the what i love and the right yeah. yeah i love that in this they have that 
little bit of a sort of a sliver to it that that uh, if they're uh, the first example that comes to mind is when the uh, girl and I'm remiss, I don't remember her name, the character's Jenny. name, Jenny, when Jenny first knocks on the door and is trying to peddle candy to the babysitter. And she's standing there, like, just as she's standing there, the head bobs are very Mm -hmm. believable. Like, it's just like, and that's why you mentioned the Uncanny Valley. Like, it tricks you for a minute because you're like, I'm not watching, I'm not watching real people, but they move like real people. And it's, it's, um, and, and again, that's, it's impressive once you sort of catch the wavelength that it's on. But I do really appreciate just in general, that's my first note on my likes, dislike. Like, I love the animation style and, um, it also heightens, elements that uh would be like more fearful like right out the gate love 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 i love the opening shot with the leaf yeah but i love the first time we see uh nebercracker is that her name is that his name i always feel yeah. like i'm getting his name wrong nebercracker but when we first see him and he just sort of emerges from the shadows uh-huh. from that pitch black shadow um it's just it's great i mean just again the animation style the entire look of the film um, it's it's really very very impressive. Well, and Nebercracker bucks the trend, I think, for the Uncanny Valley idea because his physical design facially is so exaggerated. He's an older yes. person, so you know naturally more elongated features. Whereas right. it's when they try to steer into quote unquote naturalized, naturalistic looking faces, it's like what am I staring at here? Specifically, like, no, Z comes to mind. Like, there's some shots. Where I'm like, is this a person I'm supposed to be? <laughs> is this an alien? <laughs> right. Um, right. But right, to right. your point, I mean, all the characters have a real distinct kind of body language to them. I mean, most exemplified mm-hmm. by Chowder, who's just the stupidest, most hysterical idiot in just about He is hilarious. It's hysterical. I love oh my gosh. Clean her tummy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I love when he's just like he's just like, oh yeah, Dad. Well, you can kiss my hairy butt. Hey, <laughs> DJ, you got he's any like, beer? <laughs> hey, DJ, you got any beer? And he's like, oh, <laughs> Dad, you can kiss my hairy butt. <laughs> oh my gosh, he's so perfect. That that hey, voice hey, actor, and this beer. was before yeah. he was on it. <laughs> um, that voice actor is one of my favorite recurring characters in the Goldbergs. I don't know if you still watch. Oh the Goldbergs, no, I never but, watched that. Um, I never. But did. He's one of my favorite uh, recurring characters. Well, and that whole moment, that whole sequence ends with him. Yeah, authority can be so. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it does it for like. The man commits. Just like, he does it for like like three minutes. Oh my gosh, that's so oh, it's funny. Hilarious. Oh, it's hilarious. great. And I love when he what? get more chowderisms that I just love so much. He's just like, I don't want to steal drugs from my dad. I don't want to get eaten alive. I don't want to die. And then Jenny's like, I think it's a good idea. I agree. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that got a, that got quite the guffaw out of my kids. Oh, my um, gosh, it's so funny. A few notes of my kids' responses when. <laughs> when the house uh this is about mid film when the house is about to attack or is in the process of attacking the three kids it's when the concrete slabs are up in the air yes oh my gosh and, yeah yeah uh z steps out and my oldest kid she said, how does she not see that <laughs> she must, <laughs> daughter was very frustrated she's like it's right there oh my gosh uh the other one was relative to the vacuum cleaner dummy plot and the other kid said, that is a pretty genius plan. 
<laughs> it was very, very applauding of the plan. So it's not it's something that just cracks me up. I don't know. There, there's some heavy hitting voices in here. I don't know if you looked up the cast, yeah. but um, oh, Catherine the, O'Hara, I loved out of the gate. I was like, oh, oh wonderful. But uh, and Fred Willard, of course. Yeah. Um, and then um, it's Kevin James and Nick Cannon are the right. police officers. That police officer bit. I mean, it shouldn't be as funny as it is, but it is so stupidly funny. I love when he's sitting there, and and the one uh, officer keeps like talking into the megaphone is like step away from a vehicle and um and then like there's one this flash moment where they're all just like they're just laughing and then he looks over to his partner his partner's waving a gun around (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. he's just like no 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 no, no, that's loaded that's loaded oh man it was uh although the only thing on my scares list is just i think I think when the cops get got by the house really raises the stakes of the film. Like, oh man, this is that's intense. pretty intense. No, it's pretty intense. In I fact, I saw where you may have seen this in your trivial bits reading. In order to retain a PG rating, they yes. had to show bones and the cops emerging from the pit. Right. Right. Kind of during the credit sequence. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I do think that raises the stakes uh, because that is a pretty harrowing little moment. Uh, but I actually have a couple of moments on my scares list. Like I love when Bones gets sort of drawn to the house. It's got a very yeah. sort of yeah. it vibe, yeah. you know, the with the thought. kite and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that. Uh, I also love the uh, – and this is actually on my scares list, though I'm going to cite them as loves because that's one of the things I love about it. Um, I love when the kids are in the house. You talk about like the perfect sort of kids – like it's great spooky fun when they're actually in the house because it's funny and it's really creepy and the look I'm thinking specifically of when DJ shines his flashlight up on the balcony thing I'm like that's a great shot yeah and and it's just you, all you see is like the circle of light hitting like the corner of this mm-hmm. little catwalk area and it's just it, it's just great that whole sequence where they're in the house uh, because the house has consumed the car that they were sitting in right uh, is really fantastic um, I listed that in my scares. There's also um, when the house is going on lit, it's like final rampage when it's when it's busting through everything, sure. and then uh, Chowder like over overcomes it and smashes it to bits, and and you know uh, winds up relatively unscathed, and then the house is like rising up yeah, behind yeah. him. It's yeah. it's great. Well, the whole design of the house in its latter form yes. is pretty yes. pretty wild. Um, oh, absolutely both the tree walking house form and then it's final boss form of the like spiky version. Yeah. All the planks are distorted and they're, then they're like shattered. That is the sequence where my middle kid said, are other people seeing this? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Um, I can't get too far down the path here from what might be, I alluded to it earlier, but what might be one of the most grand bits of comedy dialogue anywhere oh that must be the uvula oh so it's a girl house everyone has a uvula not me (laughs) (laughs) not me oh my gosh oh Uh, and how random the john Hader, you know oh right the the uh, video game inclusion here what a just yeah weird little you know I, i almost wish if anything this i think i'm trying to frame this as um like i've been it's it's been kind of circling my periphery mentally if i would fault anything about the film and it 
isn't really a thing I'm actively criticizing. Um, and in fact, maybe a bit of the limitations of the budget at the time or whatever, but I kind of would have liked to see more of the misfits of the town because where mm. I'm going with this is, is I like so much the comedy born of the interactions of the human characters. Sure. So that right. when it gets, when the pathos gets injected, once you learn about Constance, which is great. I mean, it's a great narrative turn. It's a absolutely you know, very yeah. strong kind of hook and, and changes the flavor a little bit. Uh, but you kind of leave a lot of that stuff behind. Um, yeah. And so your random inclusions of like, maybe, maybe add a little one or two more quest mm. elements to it for the kids to kind sure. of track down. Yeah. I don't know. I just find those it uh, I wouldn't invite that in almost any other movie, but because the script is so sharp and the comedy is so yeah, refined, right. I would have welcomed some more interactions and engagement with other human characters. A little more of that. No, I can I can get on board with that. I definitely think that's because uh, it's it's not even really. And I, I hear what you're saying, or at least I, I, I think this is what you mean. It's like it's not really a knock against the film. It's just something that would have made what was already working really well yeah. just amp up all the more. Um, yeah, I, I I totally agree. Um, and I I like the other sort of collection of characters. You talk about like it's really interesting because I think the kids themselves and the babysitter are the ones that look the sort of strangest because of how naturalistic they're supposed to look. Right. Uh, and the mom and dad, the rest of the characters look very stylized. Yeah. Like Bones looks very sort of Absurd. funky yeah. and weird, you know. And um, and then also Skull, who John Hader plays. Um, Did you catch so- that there is? Um, uh, I don't. I- I don't know if the note was meant to suggest that it was an abandoned subplot, but that like bones and skull were in a band together, that that's what her shirt is. And that's what she's listening to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did, I did catch it and I don't know if that was supposed to be like in an earlier version of the, of the script or something, if they were supposed to play bigger roles or, uh, if there was supposed to be something else along with it. Um, before we potentially leave the more cursory stuff and potentially dive into something a bit more substantive, um, I I love it. I, I think it is super cool, and I love it. It is utterly unbelievable, but I love so much the DJ on the crane, so much of those shots, that yeah, sequence, yeah. where like she has to ignite the dynamite, he has to sort of time it right to catch it in the air and then time it right to swing by blow up the house and then also, you know, rescue chowder in the same sort of mid swing. While I find that like really hard to believe. Sure. Yes. <laughs> you know, that that <laughs> totally would be possible. Yes. What a fantastic sequence of shots, just yeah. like the animation, yeah. because, uh, because you see the whole scope of the town, you get this big wide aerial view of the house itself. You get some close ups and distance shots of the kids. It's, it's really, really great sequence. It only lasts about like 45 seconds or so, but it is just an absolutely fantastic sequence of shots. Uh, well, and well, that's it's really kind of what shot, I'm, <clears throat> that's kind of what I was trying to, that's at least in part what I was alluding to earlier about the animation style. It's so, well realized visually that's yes it's very fluid uh yeah oh there's nothing kind of static everything is moving it's it's a lived-in world and that's kind of impressive to have pulled off at that point in time Uh, but yeah i I would agree with you even watching it i was like yeah okay i'll just i'll buy this because it's what you showed me (laughs) (laughs) but it is it is visually very gorgeous 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, I mean, that kind of takes me through my, my more superficial stuff. Um, I, I'm, I have a subject that I definitely want to discuss, but I want to yield beforehand if you've got anything, uh, particularly that you want to bring to the table for theme, um, whether it dovetails from that into what I'm mentioning or, or if you want me to just uh, start. I don't have anything of super substance. It's more cursory okay. notes that I hadn't fully developed yet, so I'd welcome. Sure, sure. Um, so I don't even know, as so frequently happens on on our show, the, the, I am coming into the conversation with seeds that the film have planted in my heart, and they're 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 in the text of the film. This is I don't think this is one of those cases where I'm just, you know, bringing a lot of other things to it. Um, this is in the text of the film, but uh, is is only just sort of sprouting leaves. So maybe through the course of our conversation, we'll put more substance to it. But the narrative for anybody who hasn't seen this film, uh, the narrative is there is this house in this neighborhood that ostensibly for much of the neighborhood philosophy is just inhabited by a cranky old man who doesn't want anybody on his lawn. And this man, in the efforts to try to um, expel our main two kids from his lawn because the basketball drifted over there, he has a heart attack and passes out. And when he does that, he gets taken away in an ambulance. And that is when it emerges that the house actually is possessed. And the kids think it's possessed of the spirit of the old man who has died. So they think so has died. Yeah. They think has died because they saw him carried away. They think, okay, the old man died and uh, now his spirit is inhabiting this monster house and is coming after us. Well, then there's a, there's a pivot in the third act of the film when uh, a, a taxi cab or some, uh, some vehicle drives an Uber, drives I'm up. sure. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> and, and then um, ne- Mr. Nebercracker comes back and he's, he's, you know, wearing a sling. He's obviously, you know, recovering but uh he returns he is not dead and that's when we learn that and there have been seeds planted of it especially when they were inside the house and they saw uh there's a rumor that mr nebercracker killed his wife and that uh that's why he's a evil wicked bad man well then when he returns you get the whole story and the whole story is actually that his wife was a uh carnival sort of uh she she played the requisite sort of grotesque um a very very overweight individual and and a, a, an object of scorn and ridicule for carnival uh attendees and mr nebercracker in his younger days fell in love with her wanted to rescue her away from that world which she willingly went with him but then when they began to build their house and began to settle into their life um, she still was an object of ridicule and scorn for some kids in the area, some like younger teens in the area. And in the course of one of their teasing of her and throwing things at her, she has an accident, falls down, and through this haphazard freak accident, gets cemented and, and dies, gets cemented into the foundation of the house. And dies there. So the spirit that is inhabiting the house is actually her spirit. And he has lived there somewhat trapped for like 45 years. And the reason why he keeps expelling kids from the lawn is because she has this uh, this traumatic aversion and will just like 
destroy anybody who comes near her lawn. Like she, if not if if not kept in check, if not if not bridled, um, she will uh, do away with anybody who comes to the lawn. And so he's been trying to protect the house and protect the kids by keeping them away from each other. In so doing, has falsely presented himself as like a grumpy old man. Sure. And here's the seeds that sort of began to to spring forth because then when. He finally unburdens himself of this story to our main children. Um, then they, they they grasp it, they understand what's happening, and they want to help him. They want to they want to help him sort of get rid of this and make peace with this, which he finally wants to embrace. Um, he's he's exhausted by this facade that he's kept up for half a century, and so he he wants to experience freedom from it, and. I have a fear that I'm going to more clumsily step into this um, uh, this idea, but this this is kind of what I was I was scratching at. I wrote down when what we love becomes encased in a dwelling or a symbol, when fundamentally what we love becomes substituted out by an object that represents what we love. Mm-hmm. Now, in the in the course of Monster House, her actual spirit, it's a fantasy, sure, where sure. her actual spirit is inhabiting the house. But when we Im- imbue an object, an inanimate thing, with the spirit of representation of that same right. thing, that can very quickly become quite dangerous and quite demanding. And suddenly, our entire existence revolves around appeasing, satisfying, protecting that, you know, what ostensibly was an inanimate object, but now we're experiencing right, as right. if it were a we're living, projecting. breathing. Yeah. Yes, we're projecting living, breathing uh, entity, you know, personhood or, or um, living thing onto this otherwise inanimate object. Um and so that that sort of began my exploration of thinking about what this film was really, you know, trying to say or ex- at least what subject it was scratching at. And then I found it remarkably lovely and I'll 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 sort of close the parentheses on this and then invite your your feedback to these thoughts. I found it remarkably lovely that his response to the destruction of the house because that is where the story goes the house is blown to bits um with uh you know some dynamite and the destruction of the house his um immediate reaction is one of exaltation because he's finally free and he says goodbye to the spirit of his wife and they they in this spectral sort of moment they share a moment together and he feels it's really lovely oh ab- absolutely and uh, and then uh, he expresses, and he's a complete he's a completely different person now. Right now, uh, you know, he has generosity of spirit. Now he is returning the things that this house consumed the 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 tricycle that he did break, but um, you know sure. the little girl's tricycle at the beginning, um, and uh, and and is giving back these things that the house kind of consumed that the um, dwelling which had inhabited uh, his trauma now has been destroyed and i just found it again you use the word i use the word remarkably and strangely lovely that in that there's a 
There's a Michael Card song. I don't want to pivot us, you know, don't have to pivot us too spiritual too quickly, but uh, Michael Card is a is a, a Christian artist whose work I heavily admire and highly respect and 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 quite adore. Um, and he has a song um, that talks about uh, Simon Peter. The verse talks about Simon Peter, like he's uh, he's standing there tending his nets, his fishing nets. Uh, but then when Jesus calls and the boats drift away, um, and and it's the line of the song. I didn't write this down, so I'm trying to recall it from memory. But the line of the song says, uh, the boats drift away and all that he owns, he forgets. Um, and leaving the people so puzzled, um, he found, oh, oh, oh uh, um, but more than the nets that he abandoned that day, he found that his pride was soon drifting away. And we can't imagine the freedom we'll find from the things that we leave behind. Mm. And there is such a beauty and a poignancy. And the second verse talks about Matthew, and that's what I started to get tripped up on with the language that, um, you know, leaving the people so puzzled, he found that the greed in his heart was no longer around. And we can't imagine the freedom we'll find from the things that we leave behind. That is the subject in, in broad strokes that I'm scratching at as I think about Monster House. And I think about this man who lived trapped with the spirit of his beloved that was now embodied in a house he finished because he couldn't let it go. And so he finished this house and he inhabited this house for half a century because he could not make peace with what he needed to let go and leave behind. And that rapidly became deadly and dangerous. And it wasn't until that was ultimately destroyed that he found the freedom that he was you know, really desiring all along. So again, I, I don't know if that was, you know, if you jive with that, if that's something that, that you would push back on or, or what, but I mean, I'm inviting your thoughts, my friend. Yeah. I think ultimately Nebercracker is a very sympathetic figure and, and kind of tragic figure in this. Maybe the, you know, is the tragic figure in the story. Um, however, put upon Constance was, but, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which I think I'm thankful to have never, ah, this is a weird statement, to have never accrued much in the way of status and mm. large material gain. Um, again, weird statement, but only because there are times when I think it's easy for me to get judgmental sometimes watching people wrestle against losing those things. Right. Right. So, so I'm, I'm kind of torn. I'm, I'm, I'm conveying two things there, which is one kind of gratitude for not having necessarily been in that station Two, I do think what happens. And I probably have these in my own heart and spirit and life, material life that, that are I'm maybe blind to, but um, something that did come to mind while you were talking is this house we live in, which, um, we've been doing this show for four years. We've been in this house for two and a half years. Longtime listeners will remember me recording in the laundry room of that old house and then early on <laughs> recording in the garage of this new house and, and, um, moving out of that house, however small and no longer quite accommodating our needs it was, was a very big deal to me for a while. Um, and very kind of sensitive subject because it held such, you know, I, I am a bit sentimental generally, um, but also can, 
as you've sort of articulated there, imbue kind of meaning uh, into what ends up being just a house. And it took now, and, and, you know, the film dramatizes it in a pretty uh, uh, contrasting way. I wasn't suddenly Nebercracker handing out the lost toys, but it was an arc of, cause, cause yeah. we kind of knew our sort of time was wrapping up in this house. And then especially once, uh, again, as listeners may or may not know, or remember my mother-in-law lives with us. Like once that started ma- to materialize real concretely, it was like, okay, we are definitively not going to be in this home. I, my sort of decisiveness had to catch up with the need, right? Which is the yeah, need is right. we need to make a change here. My sort of sentimentality, nostalgia coupled with kind of emotionality and, and imbuing some natural investment in that space. And then in that place took a little while to get over that said once. And I remember my wife even commenting she about being surprised at how once I was able to let go, how decisive it was. It was like, Oh, Mm. and, and I think there's so many elements in our, that, that our society sort of encourages you to hold on to strongly, not just in a technical autocratic kind of way. In other words, a career, but also in a pathological, emotional kind of way, like the loss of a loved one, you know, right. And how, again, utterly empathizing with, but how much I think wholeness and health is only really achieved by holding those things loosely. Um, Mm. to the point Mm. of if needed letting go i remember this this is going to sound like a political statement i'm not but it's the impression i had at the time these things were happening i remember watching the hearings for brett kavanaugh two years ago yeah right Mm. and now again I'm, i'm actually not trying to get political it's more just these are the things I thought about during that season, watching this person's experience because of having watched similar experiences and people I knew, uh, not at that scale, but how much we've been sold identities that were never meant to be ours, that were never meant mm. to be unrelinquished. In other words, and as tying it directly to this example, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is anybody who is suddenly under, under sort of great, uh, uh, scrutiny over a career and steps that were taken as part of a life and how that impacts a career. So again, trying to generalize it a little bit, but in that moment, it was like watching this person writhe under this scrutiny. Right. And wondering like, God, what have we done to ourselves as a culture and as a society? When again, I'm not even passing judgment about, legitimacy or not of allegations blah 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 that's not the point the point is simply when we can cling so tightly to career and accomplishment and call it integrity and identity like those Mm. are dangerous things to buy in on in the film it's nebercracker saying well i i can't leave this house what are you talking about these kids will die my my this house is my love, you know, like, like you buy into this circuit of kind of pathological 
inner jockeying that requires third parties who love you being able to speak into that. Right. Right. It's, it's of course, you know, um, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but like, I'm trying to oh, yeah. feed what you're saying of like, it took intermediaries and sometimes we'll take intermediaries to yeah. occasionally with some great loss to us, but to yeah. recognize as the song you quoted, like, what do you gain? Uh, a quote that has become, if you will, a life verse and or just scriptural to me um, and gets said in our home with some not completely infrequent occasion um, is a Beekner quote. And it says, and in reference to these things, the things we hold on to. And the quote is, what's lost is nothing to what's found. And mm. all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. Mm. And I think that a lot. And I don't think I'm great at much in life, but I try to hold very loosely materialness, material goods, whatever's career, whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, right. right. You know, someone could say like, oh, what about your family? Like, okay, we're, we're talking about some different things now, but point being. Yeah, of course. Loss. If loss isn't part of your conversation, you might be in trouble. <laughs> Agreed. You know what I mean? Agreed. Like, like yeah, just a, as you process the world and life and faith, if there's not room for losing, it may just be capitalism. Mm. Because... Because gain and accumulation and achievement, those things are okay, but they're not faith. They're not right. You know, we're, we, we just started this conversation with, I appreciate you just letting me ramble on here, but we just started this conversation <laughs> with talking about an entire sector of our society and especially people like you and I who hold deep, deep, uh, affection for the world of cinema and movie going mm -hmm. this whole block yeah. of culture and civilization, watching it tremble and crumble. And right. I do think a society without cultural touch points is in trouble. And so we should work to figure out how to value those things and invest in those things. I do think that's worthwhile and valuable. But the point I'm simply trying to make is you can't hold these things too tightly that aren't meant to be held so tightly. Someone, well, could, someone, they, someone okay. could quibble. I'm sorry. Someone could quibble. Oh, Nathan, people are losing their jobs. They are. And that's extremely serious and very necessary to have a conversation about. I'm not talking Certainly. about loss of income and security. That's not what I'm talking about. I am no. saying we're watching and, and have to hold in view that we will lose sometimes. And that yes. is part of the game and part of the story. Sorry. There is a, well, there is a significant difference between the desperation that comes when there's a threat to your empire and that empire may be, you know, um, marginal compared to 
grand empires in culture and society. But like I think about the difference between like a cinema and a library and then these other cultural sort of touch points is, well, we want to preserve those things because that enriches our culture. It enriches us, but it right. also provides a future. There's a, right. there's something, you know, to, to look forward to and to pass along to our children. And, 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 and all that is a, that is a very different thing. And certainly, and I'll get back to the whole yeah. uh, situation of loss in a second, but also talking about, yes, of course, um, it is devastating when people are losing their jobs and it is devastating when any version of loss hits and we should with profound sympathy and, and empathy and generosity where we can express and extend hands to others who are in the process of losing for ourselves. We should learn how to hold very loosely. Job himself said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I have never viewed that scripture as this, cynical apathetic kind of it, I, I think that it's not often referenced anymore because it's not often discussed anymore but i think what that kind of expression gives is not a picture of a lord who will willy-nilly you know provide gifts and then revoke gifts and everything i think that would be a very superficial reading of that it's also not uh, an apathetic sort of uh, oh, well, life is nothing, chasing after wind or whatever. I think there's a substance to I will be grateful for what I have been given and I will be mature about what has been taken away. Or I will, you know, maybe there's a gratitude to that or maybe there's just a sense of, you know, I will I will mourn or I will grieve, but I will let it go from me. The We, we spent time talking about um, the the burden of time in something wicked this way comes, and the the wrestling that Charles Halloway is doing, and and what it is it about? What is it about the children? Like the children will move on from us; they will go on from us, and much of the journey of parenthood is learning how to eventually let them go, which is dreadful right. and devastating. But that is that is part of that's part Our of wholeness. the package. <laughs> yes, absolutely, and something that I think we are not great at. In, in these days where we are faced with so much devastating and sudden loss, we are not great at recognizing um, there is, there, I'm, I'm going to be very clumsy at expressing this thought, but there is a very real difference between the acknowledgement of the fragility and the preciousness of life and acknowledging this momentary temporal nature of things in which uh, we are blessed and gifted with ability to 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 intersect each other for a moment in time that moment may be in your in my case 20 years of friendship in other people's cases just merely a, a, a couple of seconds I had this very very strange experience um, without going into too many particulars because it's not relevant and might be a bit insensitive my job right now is going through an incredible transition and many people, uh, there there have been some shifts within the company that have caused uh, people to leave the business, some by their choice and some not by their choice. But uh, we also, the building in which I worked uh, for uh, several years, um, we that building has now been sold and it's in the process of being sort of trans transmitted to be able to move over into its new buyers. And I went 
to clean out my old desk because with a pandemic, I've been very remote uh, for most of the year. So I went to clean out my desk and it was such a bizarre experience. It was such a weird experience to just stand in that space and look around at the already dismantled cubicles where now there just stands a bunch of carpet. And I remember the people who sat there and and those people have not lost their lives, but I will not work with those people again. Right. And people who I saw, it was a very weird thing for me to think in my head. There are some of these people who I saw every day of the week for a couple of years at least. And now, because I am not personal friends with them outside of the context of work, I do not know when I will see them again. Right. And so it, it really just brings to bear the fragility of something like that. And explode, that's that's my touch point for it. Right, explode right. that out to any other version that you have. And there are people who desperately want to hold on to that and they desperately want to say, well, I can't lose this. I can't lose this house. Um, I, I can't leave this house, as in never, bringing it back to Nebercracker and Monster House. Like, I can't lose this. I can't leave this. Um, and it's funny to me, obviously, this series, This is Halloween. I don't even know if we've mentioned it yet on the show. It is a background element of this that most of the film takes place the day before Halloween and on Halloween day. And Chowder is trying to get DJ to go trick or treating with him. And DJ thinks he's too old for Halloween. Now he thinks he's too old for pretend to, you know, it's, it, uh, I don't know about that. And at the end of the, at the end of the film, it kind of comes to a place and, and you have to imagine that this has some version of thematic dialogue with the rest of the stuff that we're seeing with Nebercracker that actually DJ and Chowder are like, yeah, let's get, Let's go get some candy. Let's 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 be these kids again. Let's embrace the spirit of the holiday. And I think there is a way in which we will sit in one of three camps. I'll say this. I'll cite a brief Bible verse, and then I think I might be done. Where we'll sit in the camp that is desperate. Losing is not an option. We have to win. We have to preserve. We have to protect. Losing is not an option. So that's place number one. And those people when under the threat of loss, get very, very desperate. And they begin to behave in ways that I think even from the outside you would look at and say, this that's that's not a very mature response. That's not a very that's a very desperate response. And you may think it's justified and you may think that it's uh, validated and that's fine. Uh, but it's very difficult to deny that it is desperation that you are witnessing. That's phase one. Phase two might be the opposite of that where you hold nothing precious and care nothing for engaging any of it. It's just uh, you s- get stuck inside yourself, get isolated, get uh, therefore uh, perhaps a very uh, nihilistic view of the world and of the people in it. And so because because you are then therefore uh, you, you hold nothing with any degree of relationship, nothing with any degree of sacredness, nothing with any degree of preciousness. There is a a, a third way, a sort of central ground, if you want to call it that, where you recognize the fragility, the preciousness, and the temporary nature of what you're, you've been given, and you recognize it to enough of a degree that you can treat it with the respect and the love and affection and the care that it deserves, and then at the same time recognizing we are, you know, I'm coming back to our discussion that we had very briefly about this section of Something Wicked This Way comes. We are in a particular place in time, and time is moving through us, and we are growing older, and time is drifting away from us, and time is rushing at us, and very, very little of all of this is in our control. 
and what I think our burden, our task, our mission, our object should be is how to stand in that stream and how to flow with the water or go against the current um, but but sort of dance with the water recognizing that we don't we don't control the river we are just standing in it and we are moving with it and maybe moving upstream against it um, but it is a relationship that we have with this fluidity of time um, and any version of us that would try desperately to lock down and to hold on to and to grasp too tightly to our possessions, our legacy, our, you know, I've cited it before, but I love that Rich Mullins quote where he said, um, if my ambition is to leave a legacy, what I will most likely leave is a legacy of ambition, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty profound, and I've cited it before. Um, but the Bible verse that came to mind when when you were talking about these things, we've cited a couple of others already, but... I love this passage of scripture from Proverbs where Proverbs 30 verses uh, 8 and 9 says, uh, keep falsehoods and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. And I love this part in verse 9. It says, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And what I love about the wisdom of that passage is it's so centralized in give me what I need for today. Let me have for today. Let today be sufficient. Let me have what I need for today. Um, because if I have too much, I get haughty. I get pride. I, I said, oh, I've built this. Look at this vast right, empire on right, which I stand right. and look at all of the wonderful things that I've done. But if it, But if I get too derelict, then I'm going to be forced for survival's sake to do things that are going to, that are going to put me in violation of my conviction for, for pure survival's sake. Right. So, so the prayer being, keep me in that place where today is sufficient and where I have enough that is sufficient for today. It's, it, it, it encapsulates generosity and humility, and it encapsulates a, a certain degree of gratitude. Just give me today my daily bread so that um, I recognize the sufficiency of today, and uh, and I don't get stuck holding on to lost loves in totems that that really become my cage for half a century. Um, and I also don't abandon the gleeful, playful practice because I've now become too old for joyful, childish things like trick or treating. You know, like all of these things are at play in uh, in Monster House, but stretch their tendrils to more profound places, um, if you will. So those are my thoughts. Hmm. Man, I've got some stuff bebopping around in my skull. And yeah. I really want to figure out how to. I may just tell you to, if this doesn't work, to cut out the next five minutes. But um, so this notion of, of loss and losing and imbuing meaning and identity into things that are but passing um i got it's funny five minutes ago i had this pang of of mild insecurity because the last thing i want anyone to hear in my conversation about loss and losing is that uh how do i phrase this there's a world where it could be my words could be misconstrued as a very privileged take to suggest um well it's no big deal that people lose and losing is just part of life and you know the economy is cratering and that's it, it is what it is that's actually by no means 
the intention I was in the moment responding to your granular notion of imbuing sure. meaning into artifact and, and totem. And, and if anything, the more you're talking, the more I'm getting spurred to this, um, you know, if, if the only acceptable loss is our own, that's our starting point. And right. Because I think there's a world where it would be uh, a haughty and uh, presuppose far too much to suggest to the person at the lowest rung of our socioeconomic uh, strata to be like, ah, it's fine. You know, your, right. your, your impoverishedness is fine. Um, learn to learn to lose guy, gal. Mm. Uh, and mm-hmm. in fact, I think that's in fact uh, antichrist like. Um, that that sort of mentality would be. And so when I say we learn how to lose, it's those of us used to privilege and wealth. And however much we want to pretend otherwise, most of the folks listening to this, if you're listening to a podcast on a smart device, odds are good you're in the middle to upper middle class of the society in which you live. And it is our job to be Christ-like in how we operate in the world, which sometimes means a condescending sometimes means a, a I'm thinking about the end game conversation with Ian about the gift of our life being returned, right? Like, like right. the right. resources that are yours, your voice, your status, your, your uh, resources from a financial standpoint, like, and, and you might be able to name off another one or two, maybe your time, if you don't have three kids, uh, maybe, you know, uh, uh, a particular skill, like these are things that are not meant to be, uh, held onto with, with great strength and are meant to be returned. And right. I don't know. There's some interesting places that my brain was going a minute ago to, to kind of follow this, but I don't want to, I don't want to start an unformed thought that might piss someone off. Um, but I, I do a little bit. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about, cause here's the, here's a question that came to me. Read what happens when the thing you're supposed to let go is the version of Christianity that you've been holding on to. Mm-hmm. And why this came to me as I was processing this whole conversation and the, the, the backdrop of what you and I are talking about is so there's the tiny view of Nebercracker in his house. There's the broad civilizational view of economic class coming into direct incendiary conflict with each other. Right. And I remember, and again, this is stuff. If it doesn't work after the fact, cut it out. But I remember a month ago in when all the, the protests were happening in Portland and, um, I, I actually have done really well. Uh, mm, let me rephrase that. I've done better than I did at my worst, <laughs> which <laughs> it's all shades of gray, right? You know, at my worst in terms of social media consumption, it was really bad post November, 2016. Um, so I've come a decent way since then and developed at least some internal sort of guardrails on some of this stuff. We all can do better. But uh, when post George Floyd and I am extremely empathetic to these conversations that are um, developing around uh, uh, racial 
issues in our culture and police violence. Um, partly because I think we're always meant to be for the underdog and here we are. <laughs> but I remember in Portland watching and being inspired by the protests that were happening there because for much of it, and I was, I, I, I'm not the, I'm not the lone gunman from the X-Files sitting in a basement, you know, charting, making charts and graphs, but I was paying pretty close attention because I want to be able to, the things I defend, I want to feel good about defending them, right? Like, sure, oh, I'm okay certainly. with this thing, so I need to kind of understand what I'm talking about a little bit. Um, so I was paying a relative close attention to those, and there were some pretty damn inspiring things happening. I don't know if you paid any attention to this, but you had mm. this wall of moms that were defending uh, protesters, peaceful protesters from uh, rather aggressive uh, uh, paramilitary forces. And wow. you had uh, this like pool. It, it wasn't specifically called the dads or whatever, but so there's this wall of moms. Then there was this like just men of this community coming out with um, uh, leaf blowers because the protesters were being tear gassed and blowing away this tear gas from these protesters wow. to protect them. And so I'm watching that unfold and then read, I'm watching again, you're the editor. Uh, then <laughs> I'm watching. There's, I don't know who these people are. I don't keep a finger on the pulse of these things anymore, partly because it feels so self masturbatory, but there's a rather prominent vocational worship leader that in, in, in the U S right now, I'm not going to name the guy, but, mm. um, has been in, mm -hmm. in photos with our current president and stuff like that. And, um, and he was leading worship. And so I was seeing these juxtaposing images of this sort of famous worship guy who was talking about, you know, people coming to Jesus at this thing. And um, I'm getting more worked up than I anticipated, but people coming to Jesus at this thing. And, oh, it's just, okay. it's just, it's just frou-frou. And, and, and I wanted to be like, but are you taking care of them? Are you paying attention to what's happening? Because if right, you are right. holding so tightly to like this hyper specific, I'm trying not to use buzzwords because I don't want someone to be like, well, you're just anti that this very hyper specific expression of a thing that is ignoring right. the very real actual plight of very real actual people. Maybe that's a thing that we should let go of. Right. Because yeah. the need is not whip someone up into a emotional frenzy from a worship experience. No, <laughs> no. And, and someone could be like, well, Nathan, people are getting saved to these things. May, are they maybe sure. Okay. That's a, that's a whole conversation. That's different than what I'm after, which is saving people looks very differently in my view than uh, a, a magic wand that uncouples them from needing to feel secure in their life by roof over their head food on their table you know yeah. what i mean again yeah. this is a really wild direction to spin this well let me so so let me just can at least can at least succinctly yeah. try to say all out where this was coming from was the things we hold on to and what they cost ourselves and those around us and it just kept scaling up in my spirit to this dichotomy please go ahead 
No, absolutely. Uh, I, I want to affirm. Yeah, I, I can, I can sense, and listeners can probably sense some, uh, some need on your part to make sure that people don't hear what you're not saying, mm-hmm. and that there's, uh, you know, a, a, a clarity about it. Uh, James chapter. This is scripture. James chapter two, verse sixteen. If one of you says to them, "Go in peace, keep warm and well fed," but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And I feel like there is, and and the book of James calls it out in more places than one. There is a version of this thing that says, I will pray for you. We will uh, worship together. I will, uh, you know, express love and affection. And then I will get back into my comfortable, cozy car and go back to my comfortable, mm-hmm. cozy existence. Mm-hmm. And you will be left to fend for yourself in the ashes of what's left behind. Now, I, what I am not saying is that... Every individual, uh, I also am a very big believer in be your, be your person in the kingdom because the kingdom is vast and full of a multitude of different varieties. So be your person in the kingdom. I deeply believe that. I'm not saying that everybody has to be everything and satisfy every need because that would be too overwhelming. You will collapse under the weight of it. But I think there is a mindset that we can adopt to where you say, I've really, I really believe I've done some good here because what I have done is, um, you know, and ultimately it really just feeds back into your own legacy, your own self, your own ambition. Like, I really believe I've done some good here and look at all the good that I've done, you know, like, uh, the, the, the photo op, the, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the social media likes and blasts and, and feeds and everything. Um, because that's the, that's the allure. That's the culture that we're right. in right now that says, you know, look at how successful you are at doing this thing and look at how amazing it is. I have always been, and I've expressed this to my hometown church pastor. I've expressed it to my father who was a pastor. He's a retired minister. I've expressed it to virtually every minister I have ever sat down and had an extensive conversation with. Um, I, I've expressed this version of I get very weary and skeptical and suspicious of the the version of our faith that says clearly the Lord has blessed this because look right. at how successful right. it is and right. look at how massive it is when in point of fact I have this, this deep abiding conviction that the Lord may be far more interested in the conversation happening tearfully in the corner that nobody else really cares about or in the the quiet uh, left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing uh, of sharing of resources or the anonymous this or the anonymous that like those are the things that I that I feel convicted by is so much more uh, the attention that the Lord is is after then, uh, you know, oh, look at, we, we busted the doors down and look at how, you know, uh, how many people came out for this thing. And, 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 and I get it, hopefully, and I, I trust our listeners, I trust you, hopefully you trust me, that um, th- they will understand what we are scratching at. There is a version of this which prides itself on visual impact. Yes. And there is a version of this which prides itself on, on actual impact hammer to nail, wood to wood, stone to stone, flesh to blood, bone to bone, we have done something here, as opposed to uh, the the uh, pearls before swine, as opposed to there is, this is just the, the chasing after the wind, the vanity, the vain, empty legacy that we believe we have wrought, 
versus um, we have actually planted a seed and the seed will take root and that root will produce a, a tree and the tree will produce shade and will produce fruit. Um, there, there are those different paths that you could walk down. And I think the mission for us is be sure you are not trapping yourself in a, a, a house that merely embodies a spirit of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but rather that you are allowing the memory of that and allowing the relationship that 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 birthed in you um, to express freedom and generosity to the people around you, uh, not just generosity of material goods, but generosity of spirit, generosity of wisdom, generosity of affection, generosity of empathy um, that, uh, that allow those things to endow you and to uh, propel you into being more generous and open-hearted of spirit and open-handed. Um, Henry Nouwen has that book about prayer that's called With Open Hands, talking about like that's that's how we should pray, not gimme, 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 but with open hands to to give and to receive, uh, more fluid, more, uh, again, we are standing in the river of everything that is swirling around us. And so, no, I, I, I definitely uh, will not be cutting out what you... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm not 100 percent convinced I did um, what I was trying to say justice, but I tried. No, because because there again there is we we have gone we have gone long enough, uh, and and we can possibly leave it here. But there is there is a version of this that traps you for half a century in a cold dead house because the spirit is vindictive and it is uh, dangerous. And there is a version of this that when the I'm not getting choked up. I'm just my um, You're good. voice is going. Um. And there is a version of this that when uh, that totem, when that dwelling, when that inanimate thing is finally destroyed, then you experience the freedom to release and and to uh, express the relationship in the way it was born Mm -hmm. and then allow that to – because he says that to the kids in Monster House. He says, if if I do, uh, I'll have no one left. I'll have nothing left. And DJ says back, that's not true. That's simply not true. And he doesn't go on on this big 20-minute tirade about all the things that he's going to have in its wake. He just simply declares, that's not true. You won't have no one left. That's not true. You are not stuck in that rut. You are not not bound to that thing. Yes, I'll have you. You are not completely stuck in this particular path. Um, There is a possibility for... In volcanic scriptural language, repentance, um, freedom, liberty, for the chains to fall off, for that uh, dwelling, that totem, to break and smash. For that, uh, in this context, for that idol to come down, yeah, to yeah. fall yeah. apart and break at your feet, and then realize what you have ahead of you and what you have been building uh, and what you have been scraping at merely, uh, as Matt Jameson discovered in our Leftovers conversation, merely perhaps was a version of things, not the real thing itself. Um, and, mm. uh, and maybe by letting go of the symbol of the thing, we can grasp the thing itself or at least move hand in hand with it into where it intends to go. Um, and that is spirit and that is truth. That we uh, let go of the 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 iconography that says this is the cold dead thing that represents this is the golden calf that represents right, right. you know what freed us from Egypt. Rather smash that, destroy that, 
and move forward in the spirit that, uh, like the wind, you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. Uh, you just move with it and you, and you recognize it when it moves in, with, and around you, um, and, and through you. And so, um, yeah, I'm just, oh. we, we, yeah, hey, we need to stop because, did you, did you just say you met Dan Harmon? <laughs> he would not know my name. If anybody knows Dan Harmon, he would not oh, know who Reed Lackey is. Everybody knows so. your name, Reed Lackey. <laughs> Reed, Re, um, Lackey, the uh, listicle. Oh boy, oh boy. Lackey face. This was um, hmm. this was a delight. Wow. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Yeah. That, uh, who knew? Uh, we started off by saying like this is a really good uh, scary spooky movie to show your kids, and then we go in off and on, yeah. all these other Getting tangents. All so, emotional like. Yeah. Let's uh, let's go to the fog meter. I should and, never and bring this home ever. This happens sometimes. I'm like, this is going to be a brisk episode. <laughs> <laughs> don't ever. That no, always don't ever. backfires. <laughs> it does um, for two and a half so hours later. The, the fuck? Is it really? Oh, my gosh. No, like 2.15. Oh, like oh, oh, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, my Lord. Monster House. <laughs> what have we done to you? Um, <laughs> Monster episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the fog meter. Uh, we grade things on a metric of fear and God. How scary was it? How substantive was it? Um, I will go first. I'm going to grade this a little bit on a curve just due to its, you know, a little more childlike nature. Uh, sure. A little more, you know, that, that wheelhouse. Um, so grading it slightly on a curve, I think it's pretty effective. Um, I would give, uh, Monster House a seven on the fear measurement. Nice. I mean, I was the, imi- camp- the imagery is effective. The story itself has a macabre flavor to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think it's there. Yeah, uh, I was actually going to camp out on a six, not far from you. I feel like it's uh, it's palatable for for uh, sensitive and impressionable youngins, but definitely has that dark edge that uh, that can kind of get you in the spirit and mood of the season. So yeah, six for me on the fear factor. Substance wise, um, unlike what we said, season of the witch, uh, I feel like this film. Though I do not think it is setting out to say a lot of very profound things, I think it is making a very definitive statement about its particular subject matter. I do not think it is confused. It is not muddled about what it's mm-hmm. playing with, and it is not uh, self-contradictory. So while it its ambition may not be to make some profound, reflective uh, statement, I feel like it successfully makes the statement it wants to make. And to that end, I'm going to give it an 8 on the God meter. Wow. Yeah, I like that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think what has a sort of fluffy energy to the first 30 minutes definitely dovetails with some uh, powerful, you know, I mean, the minute that a Nebercracker returns and that kind of changes the the energy and then b the emotional heartbeat of what's really going on signals now. One could make the case, are they just kind of borrowing from kind of ghost story conventions, perhaps? But mm. the piece on its own has a lot of resonance and something to sort of impress upon us, however much we may Absolutely. spin it into the far reaches. Uh, so, yeah, I think I'm going to stay where my scares were and say a seven on. Awesome. Uh, that means that we very firmly, listeners, give Monster House, directed by Gil Keenan and written by... Of course, my good old friends. They're not my good old friends. Um, Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub, uh, we give it a 7 out of 10 on the fog meter. Um, and uh, that is a very impressive for a yeah. kid 
kids horror flick. That's a that's a very impressive little measurement on the fog meter. Um, I probably a foregone conclusion at this point. But do you recommend Monster House? Um, like everyone has a uvula, I would say everyone should see Monster House. <laughs> yes, solid recommend. Yes, I wholeheartedly and unequivocally recommend it. Um, it is a great, particularly if you're if you have not seen it and you're looking for some. I think you know younger kids like the the four and five range. It might be a little yeah. intense for, yeah. um, but but if your kids are in the seven eight range and above, um, it's a great Halloween flick if you have not already seen it and accessible and and uh, you'll have a lot of fun um, and maybe have an opportunity for some good reflective, you know, thoughts afterwards about uh, letting go of certain things or whatever if that's your speed if you want to. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so wholehearted recommendation uh, for Monster House. Nathan, thank you so much for yeah. having this conversation with me for This Is Halloween. Can you believe what next week is? Can you believe it? I, I can't. No. I, I'm struggling to grasp. Uh, I have to let go of. pushing against it. Yeah, I know. Yes, it's like, I got I to gotta let go of because it, it, it's happening. We live it's here, here now. It's coming. We live here now. Um, next week, listeners, is our 200th episode. And we had a conversation and we wrestled a lot because the 200th episode's got to be special. It's got to be, be iconic. Yeah. It's got to be a big deal. And we knew, like, you know, we, we got to cover something that's going to be a big deal and is going to be epic. And, and it is, is this intersection of exploring Halloween and exploring the subject of, of faith, uh, you know, and, and believing in things and putting that faith into practice and, and, uh, the, the spooky nature of certain things and, uh, childlike, uh, wonder and dedication. And so there really was only one choice for us to cover for our 200th episode. Um, and so Nathan next week, what should listeners be prepared for besides the next installment of something wicked this way comes, which I'll explain in a second. What, what piece of film media should they be prepared for for our 200th episode? It's got to be a big deal. Well, what is it? It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, you heard him correctly. Next week, we are covering the classic special that you probably have watched year on year, um, if, if you know what's good for you. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. That is the central subject of our discussion next week. So reacquaint yourself with that in any variety you see fit and a whopping, heaping section of Something Wicked This Way comes. For next week, for our book club, read all of part two. It's the longest section in this run, but read all of part two of Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um and then it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. That's what we'll do when we see you back here next week for our 200th episode. Nathan, thank you so much again. And listeners, thank you very much. And as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. We'll see you next week. Hey, Riri, why don't you kiss my hairy butt? <laughs> <laughs> you gonna be? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God, on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork. To Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice 
And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.